0: Well, a mother has gone to court to unadopt her son. I don't know if you read about this in the paper, but a mother has decided she made a bad decision when she adopted a boy 10 years ago. He was five years of age at the time. He's 15 now, and apparently he's a handful. And so she's decided that she'll just see if she can stamp return to cinder on his forehead and send him back. It's a sad story, isn't it? gone to court she's gone to court to see if she can unadopt a boy I would imagine every parent at least has that thought every so often but we don't act on it but she has which makes me feel sorry for that boy on a certain level I think all of us can relate to that boy that we have wondered if God would ever want to unadopt us For all the promises that we've made and then broken. All the resolutions we've made and then abandoned. And all the decisions we've made and then forgotten. I wonder if he ever gets to the point where he says, you know, I've just had enough of him. Had enough of her. They're just not, no, I'm just not going to do it. You wonder, does God ever want to unadopt us? Well, Jenna and I, my daughter and I, have set apart the next few minutes to convince you that the answer to that question is a resounding no. That God will not let you go. And that your relationship with your Heavenly Father depends on His strength and not yours. On His perfection and not yours. On His love and not yours. On His devotion and not yours. And that your relationship with your heavenly father depends more on his hold of you than your hold of him. And we pray this encourages your heart. I've asked Jenna to help me with this message for many reasons. Number one, she's a great Bible teacher. Number two, she's pretty like her mama. Not like her papa. We got three daughters. Jenna's the oldest. We're so proud of each and every one of them. Jenna's uh, assignment, it seems, at least now in life, is to talk to teenage girls. And she talks to teenage girls all over the country, literally thousands of them. And she deals, uh, helps them deal with some of the issues and the challenges that come with being a teenage girl. And I seem to think that the most challenging part of being a teenage girl is this insecurity, this, this, this fear that you have of being accepted or this fear of being rejected by others, and, and I've learned that from Jenna. Isn't that your observation, that the big yeah. challenge they have is insecurity?
1: Yeah, that's a big one. Um, I I speak from experience, but I just believe everybody in this room, we were made to be loved, and loved perfectly. And when we're growing up, we as girls especially, we tend to look in all other places to find that perfect love you know we look for the approval from guys we look for the approval from friends or from I don't know anything popularity status so when those loves fail us which they will because they're temporary and worldly then we don't know how to love ourselves and we feel like we failed And yeah
0: that's especially hard for teenage girls but it's hard for all of us we live in a performance-based culture don't we the more you have the more valuable you are Uh, The more accomplishments that you have, the more valuable you are. Uh, The more you win, the more valuable you are. And the less you have of each of those, the more disposable you feel. It's a performance-based culture. That's why we think the relationship with God is so unique. Because what God says is this, I get you and I got you. I get you and I got you. I get you, I understand you. I understand you I understand what you're going through I know what it's like to be you and because I get you I've got you so that's what Jen and I want to want to talk to you about this whole idea of, of getting being gotten by God he understands who we are this comes out in a lot of ways in the Bible one way that it comes out is in the fact that the language that God uses when he talks about us is family language Yes, there is kingly language, there's shepherd-sheep language, but more than anything, there's father-child language. He calls us his father. Jesus said when you pray, pray like this, our father who is in heaven. He wants us to know that we have a father, and this father is a perfect father who accepts us. A family, ideally, I realize it's not always the case, but ideally, a family is a place where there is acceptance. We've learned to live with each other's weaknesses. We understand who each other is. We are—it's okay to have, you know, bad breath or to wear your pajamas when you're around the family because that's where performance is not the deal, but acceptance is. We've been a part of the same—well, fa- we've been a part of the same family for all of your life, haven't we? Do you, do you, how, do you think we've learned to? Can we say, "I get you," yeah. in our family?
1: Yeah, we get each other, especially in the um, arena of athletics. I don't know if you know this, but you're not looking at the, most, the, the two most uh, coordinated athletic people in this room. <laughs> Sorry I'll about that. i take offense at that. <laughs> we, and there's an understanding in our family. Sports aren't priority. They were never an expectation. I didn't have the parents that yelled from the stands, you know, like, hustle or keep your eye on the ball. I have the parents that hugged my sister and told her, we're so proud of you when she caught the volleyball You catch a lot of balls, but not a volleyball, for those of you who have never played. We were a family of most improved award people. We were never really the most valuable player award. We tried really hard though, but we got each other when it came to sports.
0: And we forget things. We are a family of forgetters. All the time. We forget everything and, and important things when we're going to the airport, somebody will always have forgotten a passport or an ID. I mean, it's, it's not just the stuff. We forget keys, forget wallets, forget phones. Somebody's always forgetting each other. And so we've just decided, okay, we've got to say, I get you when it comes to that. And, and a family is a place where you can, you can learn to practice the I get you uh, mentality. Now, my wife, I'm not sure. I think she gets everybody. But when it comes to me, I think she would say, well, I get you. But you get on my nerves. <laughs> So I really test her patience. You know what we did for her birthday last week? We took her kayaking down the Guadalupe River. You can rent kayaks, you know. And it's just a great season to do this because the water's so high and, the, and moving quickly. It's just a fun afternoon. So we went to kayaking and Jenna went, her husband went. One of our other daughters who happened to be in town went. And uh, Delan and I went and Deanlon and I were in the same kayak. Bad mistake. I was in the back and she was in the front. She doesn't even like like it when I drive and she can see me driving. So she really didn't like me controlling being the rudder of the kayak from behind. And she just kept looking over her shoulder. It didn't go over too well when I lost control of the kayak going over some rapids. And we turned sideways and flipped. the last thing we heard her say was, I want to be on my own. (laughs) That's no exaggeration. (laughs) You know, a family can, can test you. But a family is a place where we learn to say, you know, I get you. I get you. But none of us can say it like God gets us. You think of any other examples?
1: Yeah, um, when I, I was a freshman in high school, I really started experimenting with a lot of things. Um, I started experimenting with alcohol, I started experimenting with smoking and partying and all that. And. I carried that lie my whole freshman year. I didn't tell my parents until I just couldn't hold it in anymore. And for you teenagers in the room, you're about to cringe at what I'm about to say. But yes, I admitted all of it to my parents at the end of the year. I just couldn't do it. And um, when I sat him down, it was so cool because dad, his response was just a totally I get you response. He looked at me and he said, I've been there. I've done that. I get that. And by him responding to me without condemnation, but instead with his own story, it made me want to respect him more. Does that make sense? It made me want to obey him. And I can honestly say, I stopped the partying thing after that. So it really is important to be able to be accepted in that way.
0: And that's the value that our Heavenly Father brings to us. A passage that we quote often around this church is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can approach the throne of grace or the throne of God in prayer, With confidence, knowing that God understands. He says, I get you. I have been a human being. I have lived on the earth. I have lived surrounded by human beings. I know what it's like to see cranky people. I know what it's like to feel hot weather. I know what it's like to get up and go to work for 30 days, 30 years. He was a a carpenter all of his life. He headed up small family business. He, He knows what that's like. He looks at you and he says, I get you. And this is important, but not nearly as important as part two. When he says, I got you.
1: When I was a little girl, my parents used to take me to the neighborhood pool. And I remember I would splash, I would play all day in that shallow end. But when it came to the deep end, mm -mm, I stayed away from that like the plague. I was so fearful. I can remember tiptoeing along the edge and peering into that deep, dark abyss. Because what lives in the deep end when you're little? (laughs) Sharks, Right? So I thought. Now, Dad was trying to help me overcome that fear, you know, help my imagination out a little bit. And he would always be in the deep end, and he'd wave his hands, and he'd go, Jenna, why are you afraid? I'm not here. Just jump. I got you. I bet some of you parents say that to your kids, right? I got you. I love that we have a God this morning that's saying, hey, honey, it's okay. It doesn't matter how high the edge is or how deep your future looks or how deep that pain is or how much you have avoided me. I'm your dad. Why don't you just trust in me? Just jump. Put your faith in me. I got you. In fact, the Bible says it like this in Isaiah 41.10. There's no need to fear, for I'm your God. I'll give you strength. I'll help you. I'll hold you steady. Keep a firm grip on you. Don't we all need a firm grip sometimes? (laughs) Sometimes. When life gets crazy, and I love that, when I let that truth seek deep into my soul, when I really understand that God's got me in the palm of his hands, a lot of stuff starts happening to me. I start to change, okay? For one, I start worrying a whole lot less. I can stretch out and just trust that big palm as if it's my lazy boy recliner. You know, I just know that he's not gonna let me go. Another thing that starts happening, I start walking a little bit straighter. My, my chin tips a little bit higher. My confidence grows. You know why? Because I know that the creator of the universe calls me his and says that he's got me. I don't know if you've paused lately to, to just casually say during your work day or at school, hey, uh, the God who created that tree out there, he's my dad. But I think we need to do that more often. It gives us some perspective, doesn't it? And it gives us this swelling pride. I mean, forget being the child of a doctor dad, or a lawyer dad, or a Hollywood dad. You are the child of the wind and the wave husher dad. That's him. Forget being the child of the absent dad, the alcoholic dad, the abusive dad. You are the child of the sunset painter dad the bird song conductor death. That's him. And I love it because you can have that promise and hold on to it today, know without a doubt that that's your dad because John 1 tells us that. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You just have to believe in his name and you can know you're his. Amen. That's it. Ephesians says it this way, I love this. He predestined you to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? His pleasure, isn't that cool? He takes delight in adopting you as his own. I bet there's some adopted kids in this room today. I bet there are some parents who are going through that process or who have adopted. I know I've got a good girlfriend right now who is trying to adopt a baby girl from China and she's on a three-year waiting list. So you know what she decided to do to make that baby seem tangible? She decided to go ahead and name her. So now every day we get to pray for Zoe and that God will bring her home soon because there's something powerful in a name, right? It gives us identity. It can actually determine our actions and affect our decisions. And I'm not just talking about the birth certificate name, okay? I'm talking about the names I give myself I'm talking about the names other people have given me. A lot of times names that I give myself start out with the phrase, not as, not as pretty as her, not as smart as him. And you know how that affects me? It puts me in this constant state of comparison all the time, just never being content with who I am. Uh, Sometimes I let magazine covers name me as flawed, You know how that influences me? Well, I shop a lot more and eat a whole lot less. It's true, it's not good. Sometimes if I don't feel accepted or if a friend has forgotten to call me during a hard time, I call myself forgettable or disposable. And that sends me on a self-worth downward spiral because I listen to the other names that people call me or I call myself. What are names you're calling yourself today? Really, let's get real. Let's go introspective here. Maybe you're a student in the room and you just found out you failed that class. You didn't make the team. You can't live up to your parents' expectations. You could be here and you didn't get that job. Maybe you have been praying and praying for that prodigal son or daughter and he or she just hasn't returned to the Lord. Maybe you've been fighting for a marriage and it's just struggling. And so this morning, if you got honest with yourself, you would call yourself defeated. And because you call yourself defeated, how do you live? Defeated. You settle for less. You quit hoping in God. You quit setting your, your goals high. Maybe this morning you have jumped from one job to the next, one church to the next, one romantic relationship to the next, one store to the next, just trying to fill yourself. But whatever it is, you just feel empty. And because you call yourself empty, how do you live? Yeah, empty. You just keep jumping from one superficial thing to the next, one temporary thing to the next, and they're not working. Maybe this morning, you know what? If you got real with yourself, you're just not feeling love these days. You haven't heard it, those three words in a long time. I love you. Maybe you've been hurt in the name of love. Maybe you've been abused in the name of love. Whatever it is, you call yourself not loved, and so because you call yourself not loved, how do you live? Not loved. You make reckless decisions. Maybe you're hurting yourself, because you know what? Who cares? See, when we call ourselves hurtful, cheap names, we live hurtful, cheap lives. But here's the good news. When we believe in a God who's got us, this is the a major change that happens in our heart. Then we start listening to the names he calls us. You wanna know your name? He doesn't call you defeated, that's for sure. He calls you more than a conqueror, isn't that good? And all these things you can know, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. That's you, that's your name. He doesn't call you empty, He calls you complete in who? Only in him. That's it. Nothing else. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. You have the fullness of the deity of God living in you when you believe in Jesus Christ. And that is fullness. That is true joy. And it's awesome. And then lastly, he doesn't call you not loved. If anything, he calls you loved. Perfectly, for I have loved you with an everlasting love. And that's who you are. See, when we believe in a God who's got us, then we worry a whole lot less, right? We grow in confidence, and we finally know what our true identity is.
0: How essential it is that we learn this. Because, you see, it's hard to love if you're not loved. It's hard to forgive if you're not forgiven. And it's hard to give mercy if you haven't received mercy. It really is. You do not have within you the ability to create love. You don't have a, a distillery within you that, that creates love. You need to receive love so you then can give it. That's why if you find yourself finding it difficult to love others, the first thing you need to do is stop and let God love you. Let Him soften you. Let His reign of mercy come down upon you. If you find it difficult to forgive somebody, then the best thing for you to do is stop and think about how God has forgiven you. If you find it hard to put up with people, if you find yourself impatient or short, if you find yourself snapping at people whom you love, it's probably because it's been a while since you let God pour His patience over you. And since you took a good long drink from the aquifer, the well of His mercy and forgiveness. It's why the Bible talks so much about being strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. To be strong in grace, you major in grace. Because if you don't, these deep seated uh, wells of insecurity and fear bubble up within us. I believe our default reaction to life is to assume that God doesn't love us. I really do. I, th- I think that by nature we just assume that God doesn't care much about us. If there is a God, he's forgotten me a long time ago. I think that's our default reaction. And what Christianity does, what our understanding of God does, is it allows us to plug up that well of deceit that says God doesn't love me. To plug it up with truth. What we're trying to do today is is top kill. That well that's leaking toxic poison into our hearts. We're wanting to junk shot. That well, we're wanting to clog it up because what happens in our souls is what has been happening in the Gulf of Mexico. And that is poison comes out of the bottom and it comes into our system and it leaks its way onto the beaches of our lives through our words and through our eyes and through our ears. So with God's word, like the scriptures that Jenna shared and two or three more I'd like to share, what we do is we take these truths and we plug that well up so that 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 leakage will stop. And that the purity will remain. For example, to really know that God has got you, you've got to know what He's done with your sin. Because we think to ourselves, God, He might love me, but boy, I have made so many mistakes in my life. I have sinned, I have told Him I would do this and I've done that. How in the world can He deal with somebody like me knowing the sin that I've committed? Well, here's how He does that. He deals with the sin he has dealt with those mistakes. Two or three verses. One of my favorites is in the Old Testament. As far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. you know how far the east is from the west? Anybody? It seems to me it just keeps getting farther and farther and farther. Now, here's something. Why do you think David, when he wrote this verse, didn't say, as far as the north is from the south? Anyone? Have you ever traveled to the North Pole? I haven't either, but I can envision the trip. You go further and further and further, north, 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 north. You go as far north as you can go on the globe, and then where do you go? South. Isn't that interesting? If you go south to the South Pole, you travel south, past the equator, down through South America, all the way to Antarctica, and then you get as far south as you can go, and you keep going, and what are you doing? At some point, you start going north. But you know what happens if you go east? You're always going... You didn't know I knew that, did you? (laughs) If you go west, you're always going what? I I don't know why that is. You take that up with a navigator, a map maker. But that's a reality, isn't it? You can go east forever, you can go west forever, but you can't go north or south forever. So David says, you know what? What God does with our sins is he takes them and he throws them forever to forever. Forever apart from us. You know where your mistakes are that have haunted you, that you remember, you still think about, they still plague you, they still seem to define you. Why don't you view them like God does? He has cast them as far as the east is from the west. They just keep getting farther and farther and farther away. You know what else God does with your sins? Isaiah says, you have put my sins behind your back. If you hold something behind your back, can you see it? I'm holding a notebook behind my back. How many of you think I can see this notebook? No, I am not a fourth grade teacher. I do not have eyes in the back of my head. I cannot see this notebook. I really can't. I turn all the way around looking for it. I cannot see this notebook. Isaiah says that God has placed our sins where he cannot see them. He places our sins where he cannot see them. Again, there's this default assumption that we make that we think, okay, every time God sees me, he sees all my sins. No, he does not. He has placed you in Christ. He does not see your sins. He sees his son. Another great promise about how God deals with our sins. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You tread our sins underfoot. You throw them on the ground and you just step all over them. And then you pick them up and you hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Raise your hand if you've ever thrown something into the sea or the lake. It's gone, isn't it? You take a rock and you throw it into the water. Where does it go? It goes to the bottom. It disappears. You can't see it. You hear the splash and it is gone. The teaching here is that God does the same with our sins. He takes them and he hurls them into a place where they cannot be seen. And they sink to the bottom. So what does God do with your sins? He puts them on an eastbound train and he sends you to the west. He puts them behind his back where he cannot see them any longer. And he takes them and he treads them underfoot and then he throws them into the sea. Listen, you do not need to fear being unadopted. God is in charge of keeping you in his family. You're a part of his family. If you have accepted Christ, God has accepted you. And he does not change his mind. Now how does he do this? He does this not just because he loves us and not just because he wants to. But he does this because of something that happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. That when Christ was hung on the cross, all of our sins were placed on him. A holy God needs to punish our rebellion. He does, or he is not holy. And so he took your sins and mine, and Jesus became our substitute. And he stood in the place of a sinner. And he was punished as a sinner. And all the things that God should do to Max. Or God should do to you. Because of what we've done to him. God has already done. He did it to Jesus Christ. Consequently God can remain a just God. And a loving God. And he can punish the sin. But he can love the sinner. And the sin is paid for. And the sinner is saved. That's what we call grace. And that decision. Is a decision that God has made. And if you've accepted that decision, accepted that gift, then you're a part of God's family.